This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. I'll start off reading a piece that I just put together for the Observer uh, the other day on September 7th. Tip City Board of Education member regrets Nazi outburst at Tuesday night meeting. Tip City Board of Education member Anne Zakor told the Observer on Thursday, the 7th, that she is sorry for giving the Nazi salute and saying Sieg Heil to then-Board President Simon Patry during a work session Tuesday evening, September 5th. In hindsight, I regret having done this, as a course said via email. As I explained to you, after four years of attacks by a board member that I believe has been acting as a dictator spreading lies and division, my action was spur of the moment, and I'm very sorry for that. My heart is open to all religions, and it was never my intent to offend anyone of the Jewish community. In an unexpected move, Patry announced at the end of the September 5th meeting that he was resigning from the board effective that night because of business and family obligations. Sarkor had already announced she was not running for re-election. Her term expires in December. Her apology follows denouncements from two of the remaining three Board of Education members, the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton, Ohio's Regional Anti-Defamation League office, and Ohio Jewish Communities, the umbrella organization of Ohio's eight Jewish federations. Since the 5th, the evening of the 5th, local media coverage and video of the outburst have been picked up by local media outlets across the United States. As seen in the video of the September 5th Tip City Board of Education working meeting, Sakur attempted to cut in while Patry was speaking. I'm talking. Do not interrupt me. Do not make any noises or else I will. I will not tolerate that. Stop talking, Patry told Zakur. She then raised her hand in the Nazi salute and said, Sieg Heil. Invoking Nazism with a Sieg Heil salute during a school board meeting, a place meant to support and guide our youth, is outrageous, offensive, and potentially dangerous, Kelly Fishman, regional director of the Anti-Defamation League based in Cleveland, told The Observer. Hateful gestures and words cannot be normalized by local officials who are tasked with representing everyone in their communities. The ADL denounces hate in all its forms and is available to provide resources to support the local community. In March, ADL's annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents reported that Ohio experienced a 37% increase in reported anti-Semitic incidents in 2022, 107 compared to 78 in 2021, and 2021's numbers were a 22% increase from the previous year. With a population of just above 10,000 people, Tip City is approximately 16 miles north of Dayton. The Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton is aware of 36 people in 21 Jewish households who live there. Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton CEO Kathy Gardner described the incident as shocking and disturbing. While I do not believe this woman had anti-Semitic intent, her actions highlight the need for education and a deeper understanding for all, Gardner noted in a statement. This incident is a reminder of how damaging words and actions can be. Flippant, casual references to Hitler, the Nazi regime, or the Holocaust grossly diminish the tragedy that still affects so many. 
Seeing this image splashed in the news in reference to a disagreement at a board meeting desensitizes people to the terror that ensued at the command of Hitler. In a phone interview with The Observer on the evening of September 6th, the evening before her apology, Zakor had difficulty understanding why anyone would be offended by her outburst, though she said, I feel like crawling in a hole. It came out of my mouth right there and then because I was just frustrated, Zakor said. This has been building up. I think he, Patry, does have a dictator mentality. It was like the symbolic, sarcastic gesture of submission to a board member trying to act like a dictator. That was in no way meant to be anything towards the Jewish people. If we don't identify even at a local level, if we don't call out suppression and oppression, I'm not an expert at this, but isn't that how some of this snowballed with Hitler and Nazism? Zakor added she wasn't trying to say that her situation equates to somebody that's gone through the Holocaust and that what the Nazis did, I'm not saying that Mr. Patry did things like that and physically harmed people. In an interview with the Dayton Daily News, the morning of September 7th, Patry denied Zakor's allegations that he is a bully and acts like a dictator. He called on Zakor to resign. That was actually Wednesday, September 6th. In recent years, Tip City Board of Education meetings have become known for acrimony among its board members. In December 2021, petitioners sought through the Miami, Valley Common, uh, Miami County Common Police Court to have Zakor and Teresa Dunaway removed from the board. At the time, Zakor was the board's vice president and Dunaway was its president. The court had scheduled a trial for this October, but the group that filed the complaint dropped it in March, citing expenses. Zakor said the media coverage of her Sieg Heil incident this week makes her sick. I've been getting hate mail. You wouldn't believe the four-letter words I'm I'm being called. Howie Beagleman, president and CEO of Ohio Jewish Communities, told The Observer that in 2023, it's never acceptable to compare a political opponent to Hitler. It's never acceptable to use a Nazi salute in debating and discussing policy or political differences. As the Ohio governor and legislators are putting more of a focus on Holocaust education, this is a sad reminder of why such efforts and leadership are needed. Two of the remaining three members of the Tip City Board of Education have denounced Zakur's incident. Amber Drum, who is now president of the Tip City Board of Education, said in a media statement that she was shocked by Zakur's lack of professionalism. She didn't notice the incident when it happened, only afterward when she saw the video. At Tip City Schools, our district motto is where excellence is a tradition, and we ask those in our district to follow the three pillars, be respectful, be responsible, and to have integrity. Those expectations were not met by Mrs. Zakur's actions at last night's board meeting. Regarding Patry, who resigned as president and from the board September 5th, Drum's statement said she has never felt bullied by him or even been made to feel or been made to feel less than by anything he has said to me. Board of Education member Teresa Dunaway, who was out of town during the Tuesday night meeting, declined to comment. Tip Board of Education member Richard Maines Sr. said in an email interview that like Drum, he didn't see the incident when it occurred. I too was offended and insulted when I saw the video replay, Maine said. No one should imitate Hitler. My father fought in the U.S. Army to defeat Hitler and the Nazis. 
I'm sure my father is equally offended, even though he is now deceased. The Observer reached out to Tip City's mayor, Mike McFarland, for an interview about the incident. He replied by email, Regarding the unfortunate situation that occurred, the city is not involved with the school board as they are a separate organization and not under city control. The city has no comment at this time. Tip City Board of Education Superintendent Aaron Moran also declined to comment. And now we'll go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Newly discovered document lists more than 3,000 Jews the Catholic Church sheltered from Nazis by Andrew Lappin. Newly uncovered documentation appears to confirm that Catholic convents and monasteries sheltered more than 3,000 Jews from the Holocaust following the Nazi takeover of Rome in 1943. The papers, which have yet to be made public, were discovered at Vatican City's Pontifical Biblical Institute and announced Thursday. They contained the names of 3,200 people who have been verified to be Jews by the organizing body of Rome's Jewish community. The research was a joint project of the Institute, Rome's Jewish community, and Israel's Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum, in addition to two Catholic-affiliated universities. It was coordinated by Dominic Markle, a scholar at the Institute. The discovery appears to further complicate the already ambiguous narrative surrounding the Catholic Church and the Holocaust. For decades, historians have battled over how to interpret the actions of Pope Pius XII, who signed a treaty with Nazi Germany as a Vatican official before he ascended the papacy. Later, he maintained a public silence as thousands of Italy's Jews were rounded up and deported to concentration camps where nearly all of them perished. Much of the post-war scholarship, including work drawing on recently unsealed Vatican archives, has argued that Pius XII was indifferent to the fate of the Jews, but some researchers favorable to the Church have long maintained that behind the scenes it was working to save as many Jews as possible through back channels. The documentation thus significantly increases the information on the history of the rescue of Jews in the context of the Catholic institutions of Rome, the three partner organizations said in a joint statement announcing the findings. The documents, which were thought to have been lost, confirmed that Catholic institutions did save thousands of Jews as others were deported from Rome's Jewish ghetto across the Tiber River from the Vatican. Compiled between 1944 and 1945 by Father Gossolino Birolo, an Italian Jesuit priest, the papers list the names of about 3,600 people sheltered by more than 150 Catholic religious institutions. Previous documentation said that Catholic institutions had hidden thousands of people but had not listed their names. But some scholars are cautioning against drawing too many conclusions about the Church from the document, which was compiled between the Allied liberation of Rome in 1944 and 1945, according to the Vatican. The list has not yet been made publicly available to historians, leading David Kurtzer, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Jewish historian of the Vatican who has published two books on its actions during World War II, to express skepticism regarding its contents. I hopefully will be allowed to access this document as there is much about it that remains unclear from the press release and the press reports to date, Kurtzer told JTA in an email. 
as most of the people finding refuge in Rome's religious institutions during the German occupation of the city were not Jews, I wonder how and why the list would have been compiled in 1945. Kurtzer also noted that many Catholic institutions would only take in Jews who had been baptized and were considered Catholic. We may see this document used to revive and bolster what we might call redemptive narratives about the good Catholics who saved thousands of Jews. Robert Ventresca, interim academic dean of King's University College in Ontario, who specializes in Pius XII research, told the Jesuit publication America. But, Ventretska cautioned, there is a more complex reality at play, even in the case of the so-called rescue during the Holocaust. The Vatican, which last year hosted the director of Yad Vashem for the first time, has been active on other fronts when it comes to Holocaust remembrance. This weekend, the church will beatify a Polish family murdered by the Nazis in 1944 for sheltering Jews, bringing the family one step closer to sainthood. Italy's far-right government also announced earlier this year that it would build a new Holocaust museum in Rome. Next from JTA, nearly one in three Jewish college students has witnessed or experienced anti-Semitism on campus, survey finds, by Andrew Lappin. Nearly one in three current Jewish college students has witnessed or experienced some form of anti-Semitism on campus, according to a new survey. The survey was released today by Jewish on Campus, a student-founded anti-Semitism watchdog group. It was conducted by the polling firm Ipsos and surveyed more than 1,000 college students nationwide who identify as Jewish, as well as approximately 2,000 who reflect the general population of students and are largely not Jewish. The survey was conducted between March and May and has a credibility interval similar to a margin of error of 3.1%. Of the Jewish students, 14% said they had directly experienced anti-Semitism on campus, while another 16% said they had witnessed an anti-Semitic incident. The findings regarding personal experiences of anti-Semitism show a much lower rate than a similar survey conducted by Hillel International and the Anti-Defamation League in 2021, which found that almost a third of Jewish respondents had personally experienced some form of anti-Semitism on campus in the previous year. In that survey, around the same number said they witnessed anti-Semitism not directed at them. Jewish organizations have long expressed concern over campus anti-Semitism, particularly having to do with student conflicts over Israel, but also rel relating to bigotry from across the political spectrum. In 2019, then-President Donald Trump signed an executive order on anti-Semitism that spurred a series of federal civil rights complaints from Jewish and pro-Israel groups, including Jewish on Campus, alleging that public universities have not done enough to respond to anti-Semitism on their campuses. Protecting Jews on campus is also a prominent feature of the Biden administration's National Plan for Combating Anti-Semitism, which was unveiled this spring. The federal complaints and resulting investigations, which in some cases predated the Trump administration and have continued into Biden's tenure, have spurred some universities to change their policies. Last school year, months after downplaying the threat of anti-Semitism on his campus, the president of the University of Vermont issued a formal apology to Jewish students and promised to improve the school's techniques for addressing the issue. 
The Jewish on Campus survey also found that 84% of Jewish respondents believe anti-Semitism is a threat to the country and that more than a third had heard of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement against Israel that has a pronounced presence on college campuses. The words Israel and Zionism do not appear in the survey results. Notably, among respondents from the general population, the survey found that only 11% had heard of BDS, nearly twice as many. Meanwhile, 21% said they had heard of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, a group best known for a controversial definition of anti-Semitism that a range of Jewish groups have pushed universities to adopt, in many cases, successfully. Jewish on Campus CEO Julia Jassy said in a statement that the survey should push college students and administrators to meet this moment and take anti-Semitism seriously. The survey underscores the urgency of our mission to elevate the voices and experiences of Jewish students, Jassy's statement said. As the new school year begins, these findings provide key evidence of the breadth and depth of anti-Semitism students face. While Jewish on Campus has surveyed campus anti-Semitic activity in the past, it relied on self-reported data. This was the group's first survey conducted via a reputable polling firm and was funded by the World Jewish Congress. It joins a series of studies conducted by the ADL, American Jewish Committee, and others that aim to measure bigotry against Jews by tallying reported incidents or polling the public, yielding a range of results, and sparking debate over which statements or actions, especially regarding Israel, count as anti-Semitism. And next from JTA, Mahmoud Abbas peddles falsehoods about the Holocaust ahead of U.S. bid to revive Israel-Palestinian talks by Ron Campeas. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas peddled falsehoods about the Holocaust and other discredited distortions about Jews, drawing diplomatic fire just as the Biden administration is launching a major diplomatic initiative that could include reviving Israeli-Palestinian talks. In a speech broadcast last month to a body of his Fatah party, which controls the Palestinian Authority, Abbas, 87, said that Adolf Hitler and anti-Semites before him hated and persecuted the Jews not because of who they were, but because of their role in society, having to do with usury, money, and so on and so on. Memory, a pro-Israel group that tracks rhetoric about Jews, about Israel and Jews in the Arab world, posted the speech with English subtitles Wednesday. BBC verified its contents. The speech drew fire from German, U.S., and Israeli diplomats. We strongly condemn President Abbas's statements at the Fatah Revolutionary Council on Jews and the Holocaust, the German mission to Ramallah said on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. History is clear. Millions of lives were erased. This cannot be relativized. We strive to promote a dignified and accurate memory of the victims. Gilad Erdan, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, wrote on X, the world must wake up and hold Abbas and his Palestinian Authority accountable for the hatred they spew and the ensuing bloodshed it causes. Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, the Biden administration's anti-Semitism monitor, said in a statement that she was appalled by President Abbas's hateful anti-Semitic remarks at a recent Fatah meeting. The speech maligned the Jewish people, 
distorted the Holocaust, and misrepresented the tragic exodus of Jews from Arab countries. I condemn these statements and urge an immediate apology. The revelation of Abbas's speech comes just as the Biden administration is set to push for normalized relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, a complex package that may include reviving Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, which have been stalled for almost a decade. The plan is the key, rather the plan is key to President Joe Biden's hopes to marginalize Iran in the region, a goal that has risen in prominence as Iran has aided Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. Helping Ukraine push back Russia is the administration's overarching foreign policy objective. In his speech, Abbas also peddled a discredited myth and distorted or erroneous claims, including that Ashkenazi Jews are descended solely from the remnants of a bygone kingdom on the Caspian Sea, that the term anti-Semitism describes animus towards speakers of Semitic languages, and that Jews from Arab lands emigrated to Israel primarily because they were coerced by Zionists. Abbas, who has served unelected since his four-year term as president expired in 2009, has gotten flack for his Holocaust-related historiography and rhetoric in the past. In 2018, he made a speech that included similar claims to those in this year's address, drawing widespread condemnation and prompting the New York Times to publish a staff editorial with the headline, Let Abbas's Vile Words Be His Last as Palestinian Leader. In May of this year, he equated Israel with Hitler's top propagandist, Joseph Goebbels. Next from JTA, Jewish Federation's launch Rosh Hashanah letter-writing campaign to Evan Gershkovich by Jackie Hodgdenberg. Since he was arrested by Russian authorities in March, one of Evan Gershkovich's few connections to the outside world has been a stream of letters from his friends and family but soon his circle of correspondence is due to expand. In the days surrounding Rosh Hashanah, people from around the world will be sending Gershkovich letters, all wishing him a happy new year. Gershkovich, 31, a Wall Street Journal reporter and son of Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union, has been detained since March on charges of espionage that he, the Journal, and the United States government vehemently deny. He has yet to stand trial. In the months since his arrest, Jews have repeatedly employed religious rituals to call for his freedom. Now, ahead of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year that begins on the evening of Friday, September 15th, the Jewish Federations of North America has launched a letter-writing campaign to send Gershkovich cards wishing him a Shana Tova, or Happy New Year. We are deeply concerned for Evan's well-being, Eric Fingerhut, the group's CEO, said in a statement. As Jews around the world will be gathering with loved ones during Rosh Hashanah, one of the most important acts we can do as a collective community is to let him know that we are thinking of him and standing with him in solidarity. A Jewish Federation spokesperson said that the group expects a substantial number of letters to come in, but to reach Gershkovitz, the spokesperson said, Russian policy dictates that all letters must first be translated into Russian and vetted. To abbreviate that process, Federation staff will collate excerpts from the letters into one collective letter that reflects the themes of the greeting cards and notes the number of people who sent them while, considering, while condensing their total length. The collective letter will be sent to Gershkovich via his lawyers. The full texts of the letters themselves will be sent to Gershkovich's parents who live in New Jersey and are aware of the campaign. 
letters can be submitted until September 15th. Jewish ritual has figured prominently in previous calls for Gershkovich's freedom. Shortly after his arrest in March, Shandy Race, a fellow reporter at the Journal who was based in Israel, called for Jews around the world to leave an empty space for Gershkovich at their Seder tables. Her call, which was shared widely, echoed a 1960s campaign on behalf of Soviet Jewry. As you celebrate freedom, join us in demanding freedom for Evan, Race said, uh, wrote on X, the social network formerly known as Twitter. Gershkovich's pre-trial detainment had been extended multiple times since his arrest, and U.S. officials' hopes, hope for his release are focused on the possibility of a prisoner swap, which has encountered obstacles in recent weeks. An Israeli flag football team forfeited a game on Shabbat. It won the European Championship anyway by Jacob Gorvis. Israel's under-17 men's flag football team won its first-ever gold medal at the 2023 International Federation of American Football's European Junior Flag Football Champions, uh, Championships, hosted in Grosseto, Italy, last weekend. The Israeli team beat Serbia 34-14 in the championship game after defeating Italy in a close semifinal. Israel's under-17 women's team and under-15 co-ed team both finished fifth in their respective competitions. Our first gold after decades of trying, Steve Leibowitz, president of American Football in Israel, AFI, told JTA. Tough young Israeli players against the best young players in Europe. The moment the whistle blew, I knew we had finally arrived. Next thought, first we conquer Europe, the worlds are next. Despite appeals from the Israeli players, a majority of whom are Orthodox, according to Leibowitz, Israel is scheduled to play games on Shabbat. Israel was scheduled to play games on Shabbat. All three teams had to forfeit, resulting in 35-0 losses. Leibowitz said the under-17 men's team had performed well enough to advance to the Final Four, even with the forfeit, but that the under-17 women's team would have needed a win in Saturday's game in order to advance. American football is on the rise in Israel, where approximately 2,000 players, coaches, and referees are now involved in the league throughout the country. The sport has made notable strides among native-born Israelis, Leibowitz told JTA earlier this year. Israel hosted the 2019 European Flag Football Championship and the 2021 Flag Football World Championship. Last month, Israel's men's national team won a bronze medal at the Flag Football European Championships in Limerick, Ireland. Leibowitz, a journalist who moved from the United States to Israel in 1974 and has spearheaded the slow but steady growth of football there, said AFI has developed enough talent to send a team to the 2024 World Championship in Finland, where finishing in the top eight would earn qualification for the 2025 World Games in China. He said the organization's ultimate goal is to qualify for the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles, which might include flag football for the first time. After last weekend's win, Leibowitz thanked those who have financially supported the sport's growth in Israel, namely New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, who built Israel's first football field in 2000, as well as Minnesota Vikings owner Mark Wilf. With the help of the Kraft family, we created a game plan, and impl implementation is underway, Leibowitz said. It starts with great coaches, 
creating stiff competition to make the team, tough Israeli league competition, and as much international tournament experience as possible. And next from JTA, ADL CEO, Elon Musk is a great innovator who engages with users who are espousing anti-Semitism and hate, by Ben Sales. Days after Elon Musk threatened to sue the Anti-Defamation League for billions of dollars and amplified a hashtag spread by white supremacists, the ADL CEO praised Musk's business acumen, but called his behavior frustrating and said he was spreading age-old tropes around blaming Jews for anti-Semitism. I've always tried to treat Elon and everyone at the community with respect and forthright manner and a constructive approach. I would do that again, Greenblatt told JTA Wednesday. The truth is that he has been, Elon Musk, a great innovator in some respects, in many respects, in his business pursuits, Greenblatt said. That's why it's all the more frustrating to see him engaging online with users who are espousing anti-Semitism and hate. Greenblatt's comments came some 36 hours after Musk fired off a stream of posts on X, the social media platform he owns and renamed from Twitter, in which he accused the ADL of trying to tank the platform by encouraging an ad boycott against him. Amid those posts, Musk directly engaged with a white supremacist on the platform and liked a post that included the hashtag BanTheADL, which grew popular among anti-Semitic users. The ADL said in a statement that neo-Nazi marchers in Florida last weekend chanted ban the ADL. Musk also tweeted that he is pro-free speech but against anti-Semitism of any kind and that he would remove the ADL from the platform only if it broke the law. Multiple times, Greenblatt made clear that the ADL does not see itself as right-wing or left-wing, and compared the hashtag ban the ADL to the hashtag drop the ADL, which represented a campaign in 2020 by progressive nonprofits to discourage partnership with the ADL. But as the group's surveys have documented a rising tide of anti-Semitism, Greenblatt said the recent hashtag is dangerous because it could motivate attacks not just against the ADL, but against Jews. If you look at all the ban the ADL messaging, here is, I think, the key takeaway. This is not about the ADL, Greenblatt said. Of course, it is on some level, but it is really about the Jews. We are being used as a stand-in for our entire community. Some Jewish activists on the right and left who have been highly critical of the ADL seem to agree and have also spoken out in recent days against users calling to ban the ADL. We signed on to the Drop the ADL letter proudly, posted the group Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, referring to the 2020 progressive effort. So let's be clear that this ban the ADL hashtag is a Nazi campaign targeting what they see as a stand-in for Jews. It's not a disagreement. It's not anti-ADL. It's anti-Semitic Nazi garbage, period. Conservative journalist Seth Mandel, who has repeatedly criticized Greenblatt, posted in reference to a hate group, the Groypers tweeting ban the ADL are bad people with bad intentions and bad designs. Greenblatt and the ADL have had something of a roller coaster relationship with Musk's Twitter. In October 2022, Greenblatt praised Musk, who owns the electric car company Tesla, as an amazing entrepreneur and extraordinary innovator and the Henry Ford of our time, 
A comparison he has since walked back owing to Ford's outspoken anti-Semitism. I didn't deliver the analogy very well, he said Wednesday. Greenblatt had a meeting with Musk, and about a month later, the ADL and NAACP led a call for companies to pause their advertising on Twitter to protest what they saw as his dismantling of guardrails against hate speech. At one point, according to the forward, the ADL resumed paid advertising on Twitter. It told JTA Wednesday that its paid ads had ceased, though its official X accounts, including Greenblatt's, still pay a monthly fee for verification that enables certain features on the platform. In the intervening months, the ADL has criticized some of Musk's actions and statements, including invective he posted against George Soros, a liberal Jewish megadonor and frequent focus of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It also acceded to his call to condemn a South African apartheid-era protest song calling for white farmers to be killed. Last week, Greenblatt tweeted that he had a frank and productive conversation with Linda Yasserino, the CEO of X, about hate speech on the platform. By Friday, Band the ADL was trending after being posted by a white supremacist, and days later, Musk began his series of posts threatening litigation against the group. That included a post in which Musk wrote, replying to a white supremacist, the ADL, because they are so aggressive in their, dema their demands to ban social media accounts for even minor infractions, are ironically the biggest generators of anti-Semitism on this platform. Asked whether he thought Musk was espousing anti-Semitism and hate, Greenblatt sighed and said Musk was engaging with users who are blatantly and boldly doing so, and that's very problematic. I would say that blaming the Jews or ADL for anti-Semitism also kind of evokes the age-old tropes that we work so hard to fight every single day. Greenblatt also stood by the value of organizing ad boycotts against social media platforms, a tactic the group and other civil rights organizations used against Facebook in 2020. He said the ADL would address whatever lawsuit comes, if one does, and added that Musk's claims were spurious. Blaming the Jews is a tried-and-true tactic throughout the ages, he said, suggesting that the ADL, a nonprofit organization, can somehow engineer things, and somehow we have more sway than the wealthiest man in the world running one of the most powerful media platforms on the planet that has an extraordinary degree of resources at its disposal. I don't believe it. And this piece included additional reporting by Asaf Aliyah Shalev. Next from JTA, meet Mark Robinson, the Republican frontrunner in the North Carolina governor's race accused of anti-Semitism by Andrea Cooper. The Facebook post in early August condemning anti-Semitic flyers left around Raleigh might not have been surprising, coming from North Carolina's lieutenant governor. But for Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, the statement marked something of a change in tone. After the Republican was elected to the state's second-highest office in 2020, revelations emerged that he was the prolific author of Facebook posts downplaying the threat of Nazism, invoking anti-Semitic stereotypes, and targeting other minority groups. At the time, Robinson's track record earned him criticism from local Jewish leaders and national commentators, the Republican-Jewish coalition called his comments clearly anti-Semitic. In response, Robinson did not publicly apologize for the posts, but he said he would no longer make them. 
He met with a group of local Jewish leaders in 2021 and says he privately apologized to them. Now, as Robinson runs for governor and increasingly appears on track to become the Republican nominee next year, North Carolinians must decide whether Robinson has earned their trust. For some local Jews, that means taking him more seriously. Most of us find it hard to believe that he will be the candidate, said Randall Kaplan, a board member of the Jewish Democratic Council of America who is married to Representative Kathy Manning, a Jewish Democrat who represents North Carolina in Congress. I think most of us are in denial. Here's what you need to know about Robinson, his contentious social media presence, and his campaign to lead North Carolina. He's a political newcomer whose star is rising. Robinson has risen rapidly in state politics in recent years after a life spent out of the spotlight. A native of Greensboro, his campaign website says he was the ninth of ten children and that his alcoholic father abused his mother. He studied at the University of North Carolina Greensboro with hopes of becoming a history professor, has worked in furniture factories, and also opened a daycare center with his wife. He filed for bankruptcy in 1998. 1999, and 2003. Robinson's improbable rise in the GOP began in early 2018 when he spoke before the Greensboro City Council about preserving gun owners' rights following the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, two months earlier, in which 17 students and teachers were killed. I'm a law-abiding citizen who's never shot anybody, he said in the four-minute speech. Every time we have one of those shootings, nobody wants to put the blame where it goes, which is at the shooter's feet. You want to put it at my feet. The appearance went viral. Robinson went on in 2020 to win the lieutenant governor's job with 51.6% of the the vote against his Democratic opponent. He is also a National Rifle Association board member and speaker at events calling for gun rights, including the NRA's annual meeting this past April. Now, Robinson is the Republican frontrunner in the high-profile contest for governor. At a June rally in Greensboro, former President Donald Trump pledged to endorse Robinson, calling him one of the great stars of the party. Our uh, other candidates on the Republican side include State Treasurer Dale Falwell, former Representative Mark Walker, and former State Senator Andy Wells, former health care executive Jesse Thomas. Whoever wins the March 2024 primary will likely face the state's Jewish Attorney General, Josh Stein, who is so far running unopposed for the Democratic nomination. Robinson would be North Carolina's first black governor, Stein its first Jewish one. Polls show them running a close race, though the election is more than a year away. Stein is winning the campaign fund's battle to date. His campaign raised about $6 million this year through June, while Robinson's campaign raised $2.2 million during the same period. Stein has also seized upon some of Robinson's comments. Robinson's brand of extremism is off the charts, Stein told Charlotte radio station WFAE. Robinson has a history of inflammatory comments referencing Jews and other groups. Before his first political campaign in 2020, Robinson was an active and controversial Facebook user whose posts downplayed the need to discuss the Nazis' evil. I am so sick of seeing and hearing people still talk about Nazis and Hitler and how evil and manipulative they were. 
Newsflash, people. The Nazis, National Socialist, are gone. We did away with them, he declared in a 2017 post, first uncovered by Jewish Insider, which has tracked Robinson's comments since he took office. Marxist socialists and communism pose the bigger threat of control of the media, he maintained. After all, who do you think has been pushing this Nazi boogeyman narrative all these years? Later that year in another post, Robinson wrote, Please stop wasting my time, your time, and the time of your fellow conservatives talking about and making mention of the Nazis who have been dead since 1945. He has also targeted other groups, including LGBTQ people, Muslims, and others. Note to liberals, I'll accept gay pride when you accept white pride, he wrote in 2014, according to screenshots posted by the liberal news site Talking Points Memo. Another post read, I believe that homosexuality is a sin and that those people who are proudly coming out of the closet are standing in open rebellion against God. In 2018, he railed on Facebook that the hit superhero movie Black Panther was created by an agnostic Jew and put to film by a Satanist Marxist. Invoking an anti-Semitic trope about Jewish pursuit of money and using a Yiddish slur for black people, Robinson, who is black, wrote that the film was only created to pull the shekels out of your Schwarzer Park pockets. The following year, the News and Observer in Raleigh reported that he responded affirmatively to a far-right religious leader who invoked an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. After national news organizations called attention to Robinson's posts after his election, he said they would not continue. When I made those posts as a private citizen, I was speaking directly to issues that I'm passionate about, he said upon taking office. As a public servant, I have to put those opinions behind me and do what's right for everyone in North Carolina. The CEO of the Republican Jewish Coalition, Matt Brooks, said at the time he was not satisfied with Robinson's response. His refusal to apologize is troubling and unacceptable to us, Brooks said. As Lieutenant Governor, Robinson has tried to play it straighter. While Robinson has not issued a public apology, he met with Jewish leaders from Greensboro shortly after taking office to discuss their concerns about his posts. Marilyn Chandler, CEO of the Greensboro Jewish Federation, helped to organize and participated in the virtual meeting, which included Jewish participants as well as Robinson and members of his staff. During the meeting, Chandler and other Jewish leaders expressed their deep concerns about anti-Semitic remarks Robinson had made on social media prior to becoming lieutenant governor. He shared a press statement addressing these issues, though it is unclear if the statement has been released publicly. Mike Longerman, communications director for Robinson's campaign for governor, told JTA that Robinson met with dozens of rabbis and Jewish leaders from across North Carolina after taking office and that he expressed remorse and communicated a desire to learn more about the Jewish community in an effort to understand how he could better serve them as an elected official. After speaking with several rabbis across the state, JTA was unable to independently confirm additional meetings Robinson had with Jewish leaders beyond the one in Greensboro. Robinson also addressed his contentious Facebook posts and said he apologized for them in his memoir, the book, titled We Are the Majority, The Life and Passions of a Patriot, was published in September 2022. 
It came off the wrong way, he wrote, according to a photo of the book's text shared by Lonergan. When people called me and asked about it, that's what I told them, and I apologized to them. It's the only time I've ever apologized for anything I put on Facebook. It did come out wrong. I knew the truth of what I was trying to say, but I should have chosen different words. His social media presence of late has taken on a different character. Recently, on his official page as lieutenant governor, Robinson has appeared to make a point of condemning anti-Semitism publicly, including the flyers in Raleigh. Adopting a pro-Israel outlook that is de rigueur among Republicans, he has also called out recent criticism of Israel by Democrats. Democratic Congresswoman Jayapal labeling Israel a racist state is unjust and plain wrong, he wrote on Facebook in response to comments made in July by Representative Pramila Jayapal, an influential Democrat from Washington who later walked the statement back. These harmful anti-Semitic comments are not representative of our nation's values. We stand firmly with Israel, our steadfast ally. But Robinson has not entirely avoided hot-button issues or the controversy that can accompany them. His tenure as second-in-command has included a campaign against what he sees as left-wing political indoctrination in schools. In March 2021, he formed the Fairness and Accountability in the Classroom for Teachers and Students, or FACTS, task force, and in an August press conference, he said he was combating teachers who put undue pressure on young minds to accept their way of thinking. Earlier this summer, he went viral after speaking at a conference held by Moms for Liberty, the conservative group that is fueling book bans in school districts across the United States. Whether you're talking about Adolf Hitler, whether you're talking about Chairman Mao, whether you're talking about Stalin, whether you're talking about Pol Pot, whether you're talking about Fidel Castro in Cuba, or whether you're talking about a dozen other despots all around the globe, it is time for us to get back and start reading some of those quotes. It's time for us to start teaching our children some of those quotes, he said. It's time for us to start teaching our children about the dirty, despicable, awful things that those communist and socialist despots did in our history. People who viewed a clip of the speech without the condemnatory final sentence blasted Robinson for endorsing the views of history's worst dictators. Stein's campaign said in a press release that Robinson promotes reading of quotes from global dictators. The full video of the speech, however, showed that Robinson was not endorsing the dictators' views. In July, the North Carolina Jewish Clergy Association, the Democratic Majority for Israel, and six North Carolina Democratic members of Congress sent a letter to state Republican leaders asking them to strongly condemn Robinson's remarks. His inflammatory statements invoke harmful stereotypes and conspiracy theories, downplay the Holocaust, and denigrate entire groups of human beings, the letter said. They are not just deeply troubling, but downright dangerous. To date, none of the people who received the letter have publicly responded to it. Manning, a signatory on the letter, said she remained concerned about Robinson. The fact that we have a gubernatorial candidate in the state of North Carolina who makes anti-Semitic comments, who veers on Holocaust denial, is very frightening. Manning, co-chair of the House Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism, told JTA. For Rabbi Barbara Thied, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, the danger of Robinson's rise comes from his potential to inspire extremists to take action. 
She said she thought some of her fellow Jews may not be adequately concerned by the possibility that he could become governor. They may not appreciate the danger that Robinson and others like him pose to their safety, Thied said. Speech is not unrelated to action, even if one person is doing the speaking and the next is taking up the weapon, whatever that may be. Not all North Carolina Jews oppose Robinson's candidacy. Jeremy Stevenson, a Charlotte attorney who previously ran as a Republican for local school board and served for two years as general counsel of the Mecklenburg County Republican Party, said he plans to vote for Robinson in the primary. Stevenson dismisses the hyperventilation from the left about the candidate and told JTA that he isn't worried about isolated Facebook posts, which are then blasted in paid social media from the Dems. The Jewish Republicans I know are strongly in favor of Robinson, particularly in contrast with Stein, Stevenson said. I think Josh Stein has far more anti-Semitic friends on the left, who he has been unwilling to distance himself from, and will accept donations from in running for governor. Stevenson said he believes Robinson's embrace of religion in the public sphere would have benefits for Jews in the states. I think that Robinson in many ways will embolden more people to be more comfortable expressing their religious beliefs, he said, and that includes Jews. While it's clear that Robinson's past comments will draw more attention in the coming months as the primary season heats up, it's unclear how much North Carolina Jews will hear that chatter in their synagogues. At Temple of Israel in Wilmington, the oldest Jewish congregation in the state, Rabbi Emily Lopesen Ostrov said she's keenly aware of the diverse viewpoints in her congregation, which she characterizes as purple. Lopesen Ostrov serves on the steering committee of the Jewish Clergy Association, which authorized the letter about Robinson. At the same time, she said she talks about Jewish values, but not about any single politician or political party from the Bema. I want the synagogue to be a place for unity and for, for escaping some of the difficulties of the things that divide us, she said, adding, it's a dual job I need to do. One is to stand up to hate, and two is to also keep our community connected. And next from JTA, a Florida Jewish community center canceled a slavery-focused talk within a Jew with a Jewish author citing the current political climate by Andrew Lappin. A South Florida Jewish community center has landed in the middle of the state's culture wars after canceling a talk by an author whose novel focuses on race in America. The Mandel JCC in West Palm Beach had booked Jewish author Rachel Beanland to headline a $100-a-plate luncheon in January 2024. The plan was for Beanland to discuss her latest novel, The House is on Fire, a work of historical fiction concerning a deadly Richmond, Virginia fire in the early 1800s that the city tried to blame on its enslaved population. But in August, Beanland received an email from the JCC's Arts and Culture Manager asking for more details about her planned presentation and seeming to imply that it would, be, it would be best to steer clear of some topics. Of course, this is Florida and our politics around the black community, the history of the Civil War, and education in general are complicated, the employee wrote. The ellipsis was present in the original message. 
For Beanland, the language was shocking. I don't think I was wrong to interpret it in this way. It was asking me not to talk about black people, she told JTA. Beanland wrote back, with her publicist copied on the email to say that any presentation I give is likely to address slavery and the rights of women. A few weeks later, the JCC employee wrote back, after much discussion and debate, we have decided that this book is not the right choice for the scheduled event, the employee wrote, adding also our decision is very much affected by the current political climate here in Florida. Last week, Beanland made the email exchange public by posting it to Instagram. The JCC issued a public apology last Monday. And on Tuesday, the Jewish Book Council, a major organization for Jewish authors, issued a statement criticizing limits on free expression and calling for Beanland to be re-invited. The episode highlights the new ways in which Jewish authors and even institutions have become embroiled in a broad effort driven by conservatives to constrain how race and racism are discussed in public. Florida has been an epicenter of that effort, with Governor Ron DeSantis urging his state education department to de-emphasize race in school instruction and inviting parents to challenge books in school libraries. DeSantis barred public schools from using the National Advanced Placement African American History Curriculum, prompting it to be revised and the state recently approved new guidelines that historians and activists say whitewash topics such as slavery and racism. DeSantis ignited a firestorm in July when he defended the guidelines and said slavery afforded benefits to some people who experienced it. The state's guidelines do not apply to non-public schools and institutions, but the emails from the West Palm Beach JCC employee add to a growing body of evidence that a chilling effect can be felt upon uh, beyond the letter of the law. Obviously, we were dismayed to see this happen, Naomi Firestone Teeter, executive director of the Jewish Book Council, told JTA. The council promotes Jewish books and authors and facilitates a virtual author marketplace to give JCCs and other Jewish institutions the chance to book authors for events. The Mandel JCC had booked Beanland through this network, which Firestone Teeter said made the cancellation particularly disappointing to the council and led to its decision to issue a statement criticizing the JCC. When our sites make commitments, it's our hope that they would honor the commitments and uh, that they're making to our authors, Firestone Teeter said. After Beanland posted the exchange with the JCC employee who has not been named publicly, the center's CEO, Jesse Rosen, spoke to her by phone. Beanland insisted that Rosen issue a public apology, which he did Monday on the JCC's Instagram page. We're deeply sorry for what our JCC communicated with Rachel, as it does not reflect the values we stand for, Rosen and board chair Yoel Yunderfreund wrote. They added, we are deeply committed to providing diverse voices, opinions, and perspectives, and said that the opinions about Beanland's talk came from two members of their volunteer-run book committee whose views are completely counter to our values. Speaking to JTA, Rosen said the employee in question had been terminated, but for a separate issue. He condemned the employee's emails and said they did not reflect the JCC's views. The wording that she used is just not who we are, and it doesn't represent the work we do, he said. 
We hope that you look at the 40 years of work we've done, including many on slavery and civil rights and LGBTQ and other topics, that we've never been afraid to have hard conversations. That's what we do. He also said that the email's wording, in addition to being inappropriate, wasn't reflective of the actual reasons why the sender canceled the talk. Instead, he said the committee had determined that the event would be too topically similar to the previous to one the previous year that had also focused on slavery. Evidence he also cited for why he believes the JCC has a long history of taking on hard topics, and we have every intention of continuing to. Both Beanland and the Jewish Book Council say it should have been clear from the outset that her book discusses slavery. For Beanland, the bigger issue is that the center's actions are in line with the state's larger culture war over black history and an abdication of a Jewish responsibility. I feel like if there's any community in the United States outside of the African-American community that should understand how essential it is for us not to erase or obscure history, it should be the Jewish community, she said. And in light of everything that's happening in Florida and the fact that DeSantis has kind of ushered in this wave of legislation that is really trying to make African-American history, black history, just disappear, it felt really concerning. Beanland's publisher, Simon & Schuster, supported her in a statement. Difficult subjects will not go away by pretending that books that address them don't exist, the publisher told the Richmond Times-Dispatch. We stand against book banning in all its forms, including preemptive self-censorship. Rosen insists, despite the employee's email, that the JCC's staff never discussed the political climate when determining their bookings. There was just never any conversation that, based on whatever is happening in the state or the country, that we need to adjust what we do or how we do it, he said. It never, ever even entered into the conversation. Rosen further insisted that Beanland hadn't been entirely disinvited from the center, only asked to headline a smaller event instead. But Beanland told JTA she had no interest in doing so. I was obviously pretty offended at seeing the event downgraded, she said. Rosen said he was hoping to have discussions with the Jewish Book Council to determine her willingness to come to our community still. He added, we certainly know we need to apologize, and we're never trying to not have the conversation. In his own statement, the Jewish Book Council, in its own statement, the Jewish Book Council criticized the JCC's initial decision, but said it was heartened by the apology. It added that it hoped the invitation would be returned. Jewish Book Council President Alyssa Spongen-Bildner, who co-signed the statement with Firestone's Teeter, and co-president Joy Greenberg is a board member of JTA parent company Seventy Faces Media. The prospect of Beanland accepting such an invitation seems unlikely. She told JTA she's not interested in ever talking to them again. Well, that's about all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. Um, next week. I'll be coming to you just before the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And we'll have some features related to the holiday. So, as always, um, it's Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, with you. And thank you very much for listening, and 
Hope you'll be with us next week as well.